A reading from the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Come, Holy Spirit, come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things I was thinking of as Trenton was leading the music is, wouldn't it be neat if the Holy Spirit just came down upon us right then and there? All I'd have to do is come up and present the benediction and we'd all be fine. Well, I can always hope, can we? It's quite a passage on this Pentecost day. It's celebrated around the world as the day that God changed all of mankind in one sense because he sent the Holy Spirit to empower and infill his people to change their lives forever. So when you read about this event, it is really striking. And I've for years struggled with trying to figure out what that was like. What was it like to be in that upper room and have that experience? And I can relate an experience that I had uh, some years back. You know, Kathy and I came to know the Lord. We were, had a Catholic background, but we really came to Jesus in the mid-70s. And at that time, it was in the midst of that charismatic movement in the 60s and 70s. And it was quite a time because what was going on is people were shedding 
their denominational prejudices. People would gather together from one denomination to another, gather in groups, small groups, large groups, and they would study God's word. They would praise the Lord. They'd be down on their knees worshiping Jesus. People getting along, putting away what divided us and coming together with what really unites us, and that is Jesus himself. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That could not be contrived. You can read all the books you want about the subject, but you can't contrive it because God sovereignly controls that movement. And what happens to people. So in my experience, and I'm speaking from my experience, um, it was 1979. Now, because of this charismatic movement, all these Jesus people running around, they gathered together and they decided nationally there would be a celebration of Jesus as Lord of all once a year in some city. And in 1979, it turned out to be in Norfolk, Virginia. We were stationed in Norfolk at the time, and the stadium there at Old Dominion University was going to be the site of this event. And there was about 30 churches that were involved in it. And there were a lot of volunteers that came forward, and we, Kathy and I, were volunteers to come help pull this thing off with all the logistics and stuff that normally goes with these big kind of events. So as it turned out, they gathered everybody together, all the volunteers. There was about 3,000 people in a place called the Rock Church in Virginia Beach. It's the only church that could hold that many people at that time in 79. So we were gathered together in this place, and the uh, speakers that got up were mostly pastors from the different churches. They would get up and introduce themselves, where, say where they're from, um, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And then uh, the guest speaker, the keynote speaker, was about to get up onto the platform. And right about at that point, there came this huge burst of praise in song. People, 3,000 people, and they were packed in there. People sitting on the steps to the balconies. People sitting everywhere on the floor in front of the podium. And they just started praising the Lord. And it went on for about 45 minutes. It was just a magnificent burst. And it came from the congregation. It didn't come from the platform. The people that were leading the music had nothing to do with it. It was God moving at that time, changing lives. And you got 3,000 people praising the Lord. There was a lot of electricity and excitement about that whole event. And then in the midst of this, there's silence started coming over. And out of we don't know where, we hear this voice. And this voice is very high pitch, singing completely atonally, without any instruments. And just, there was this hush, this silence, this holy reverence of the presence of God that everybody got to experience that night. We don't know where the voice came from. But I believe, in accordance with Scripture, it was God singing over His people. 
Because we read that in the scriptures from time to time. God actually sings over his people. And we got to see it. Got to hear it. Got to be a part of it. It was an amazing event. An amazing time. How did it happen? I don't know. God moved sovereignly. We weren't asking for it. You can't contrive it. You can't control it. It's God moving among his people. And that's what happened here on Pentecost with God's people. So I say from my experience what I saw and what happened. Now experience cannot drive what we believe because we experience lots of different things. But I spent some time going back into the scripture to find out is this supportable by scripture? And it was. And I also had to look at our church tradition over the many centuries where there's been a move of God periodically, unexpected, raining down his glory on his people. So we know from scripture, from how scripture has been interpreted over the years, our traditions, and from personal experience, those are the three legs of how we form doctrine and theology. Because if it's just experience, it's just experience. It's just a whoop-de-doo time. There's nothing behind it. But there was a lot behind it that night. Actually, it was unfortunate in one sense because by the time we got to the rally at Old Dominion University, it was like kind of ho-hum. I mean, we'd already been to the mountaintop. Um, And it, it was difficult to kind of pressed through, it started on Friday night and it went all day Saturday and by Saturday afternoon we're, okay, we've had enough. But was time, people still talk about it. We've run into people over the years from that area around there who were there and they still talk about it. So let's look at the text and see what happened. But let's put it in context. We have to remember that this culminated based on the life of Jesus over his 33 years, his sacrifice on the cross, being buried, rising up from the grave, coming and meeting with his disciples at various times and locations, and then on their way into Jerusalem, Jesus is with them and he's telling them in the earlier part of Acts what's going to happen. And what he does is he tells them, Don't leave the city until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Stay there. And that's what they did. They went to the upper room, and of course, he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, just as the creed tells us. So what we see is some preparation for what's about to happen. Now, when we read this text, there's three questions that I would comes up. From the crowd, when they saw this event, the first thing they thought was, what does it mean? Peter, in his response, told them what it meant, what was going on, as we read in the scripture. The crowd again responds, brothers, what do we do? What are we going to do with this? Peter gives them very clear instructions. Repent and be baptized. Now I'm talking about repenting 
in, as you've heard from this platform many times, repenting is turning away from sin. It's, it's changing our lives 180 degrees from where we are as sinners to turning to God's forgiveness and grace that we receive in that forgiveness. So what we're seeing here is a situation in which a spectacular event happens. And I would add a third question. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? It's not in the text, but it clearly is implied. Why do we need that Holy Spirit? Now, these people were gathered together in this upper room. They were scared. They were afraid. They were afraid of everything. They ran and hid when Jesus was being tested. They abandoned him when he was carried off by the soldiers, and they were abandoned when he was crucified. And after the resurrection, they still didn't know what to do. So they're still in much confusion, much anxiety. What is going to happen? What is this about? So they go to and gather in this room. And the one thing they did know to do, and that was to pray. And that's what they did. Just as it says in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women that came with Jesus as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the disciples were all there, men and women together in that room. Then, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Quite an event. The crowd's response. What does it mean? And Peter gave them the answer. It was from that very prophetic word of Joel the prophet, 840 years before Jesus was born. That word came, and it came out like this. We read part of it earlier. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's a seismic shift in the life of God's people. He included women in there. I was a little bit difficult to deal with. What were they doing? I went back and tried to find out who they were. I can list seven of them, but I'm not sure all of them were accounted for because there were women followed Jesus throughout his ministry and served him. And they were in the upper room too, along with the other disciples. So it was quite an event. So Peter explains what's happened. And the crowd again says, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, simply repent and be baptized. And we're talking about rep true repentance, turning away from sin completely. 
none of us are perfect and none of us are freed from sin. We can turn away from sin periodically. I do it about four or five times a day. And repent. And be baptized. Now I'm talking about baptism in a much broader context than just a ceremony where somebody is either dipped or dripped. I'm talking about a very significant move in our lives. When we say baptism, we're talking about a lifetime study of this word of finding out what God wants us to do. And it's all contained in this book. So he explains it to them. I'll pour out my spirit. Now these folks changed. You remember the apostles were cowards. They ran away from Jesus. Now all of a sudden they were emboldened in a way like they had not experienced before. And when they went out there, they spoke with great courage. They spoke with great conviction and commitment. That courage to speak up when you need to speak up. To do the right thing, even though it's difficult for us to do. It takes courage to do that. We cannot do it on our own. We need that Holy Spirit to empower us. The conviction of knowing God's truth. That settlement in our heart when we hear God's word and even prints it on us. And we know for sure, for sure, for sure, he is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah. And that was the message that was given to the apostles. You go out and tell them who Jesus is. Wait in that room for the empowerment. Once you've got that empowerment, get out there and do it. And they did so with courage, conviction, and commitment. And that commitment was a serious one. It wasn't just, yeah, 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 I'll go do it. That commitment cost them their lives. With the exception of John the Baptist, who died in prison, the rest of them were executed. Both men and women were executed in those days for doing what they were called to do. I often wonder what that would be like for us if we were under the kind of persecution that they were under in that day. How many people would face that? Now, I, you know, I hear from time to time people tell us, you know, we're being persecuted as Christians, and I, uh, yeah. Try going to some hostile countries where Christianity is not alive and well, and you're going to find people being executed for their faith. I remember, you know, Kathy and I spent some time, some time in uh, Russia in the post-Soviet Union period, in which we saw what it was like once that oppression was released, and that was a bursting of the Holy Spirit in so many different directions, we couldn't keep up with it. It was just an exciting time. But I had an opportunity once to, to meet with a lady who was born in 1917, right at the end of Revolution. She lived her whole life up till 2003 not knowing the ability to get out and publicly worship the Lord. Talk about a lady who was filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered in her aged condition. You couldn't dissuade her from anything. It was just a joy to meet her and get to know her because of the oppression that took place 
It's estimated that about 22 million were executed during Stalin's reign. There are mass graves everywhere in that area around uh, Udmurtia and up around Perm, where the old gulags are. It's a spooky place when you go up there. People died living the Christian life. Could we do that? That's a serious challenge to us because we live a life, very comfortable life. We're not really challenged the same way. We need that Holy Spirit empowerment to do that. So that upper room experience was quite unique. Now let me talk about the Holy Spirit and identify that Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. The Apostle Paul tackles it in this first chapter of Ephesians when he says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth and the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Everyone who comes to Christ has the Holy Spirit. That's that seal. That's that brand in our very spirit. We belong to God. We are His. And that's the assurance that we have in our redemption, in our salvation. That sealing is one of the Holy Spirit functions. But He also has a couple of other functions. And I can't begin to enumerate them, but I'm going to isolate it down to what it means in the way of filling and empowering. That's his role. The film fulfillment and the empowering that he gives us to live the lives that we're called to live in Christ. It is a gift. Why do we need that Holy Spirit? We cannot do it ourselves. We need God's Spirit in us corporately and individually. We need it as a body of Christ. Another experiential story. Um, for a year, Kathy and I were, and our family moved out to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to spend a year with the Army. Um, great experience. I was told it was the best years of our lives. I'm not so sure of that. But nonetheless, it was great to see a bigger view of our armed forces with all the services represented. There is a thousand guys move in there every June and a thousand move out in every July. They call it the mating of the moving vans. You imagine a thousand families moving in and a thousand families moving out all within a period of about 40 days. Utter chaos. But I gotta give the Army credit. They well organized, well orchestrated, they did it. But while we were there, we're searching for a church. Now, you know, the older you get, the tougher it is to find another church when you're in a strange land. And we circled around Leavenworth. We expanded this search. Eventually, somebody tipped us off about the Evangelistic Center Church, which is in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. It was a right tough area. I mean, when you drove into that part of town, you're looking at burned out cars, burned out buildings. It was a tough time in 1980. 
But in that church, in that enclave, and despite that circumstance and everything, God was moving in that church. It was pastored by A.J. Rowden. He's long since passed away. But nevertheless, in that church, we experienced some things that we have yet to see again. A body of people worshiping Lord to such a degree that the presence of the Lord is actually there and being manifested in ways that that would be hard to describe. There was one particular lady. She was a prophet. Her name was Mary. And she looked like she probably was homeless. Nothing to attract you to her attention. The way she dressed, the way she looked, she was somewhat disheveled. But she was a recognized prophet in that church and in that city. So when periodically during the service, she would get up and begin to just sing prophetically. And you're sitting there trying to write down everything she's saying because you're hearing the voice of God through that woman. That was such an experience for us that, that to me, and I, Kathy would agree, that is the high watermark of church life. I would love to see that here. But I can't make it happen. That's up to the Lord. What are the impediments, you might say, of, of us not experiencing the Holy Spirit? And I'll get personal here for a moment. For us individually, but for us corporately as a body. Number one on the list is pride. We simply can't admit we need help. That's something each of us have to come to terms with. Something I've had to come to terms with many times. I still have to come to terms with it. To lay down my pride and admit I need help. I need prayer. I need encouragement. I need everything that everybody in this room needs. But we've got to admit it. We've got to lay the pride down and seek the help. I think the second impediment would be the fear or the lack of faith. What does that mean? I had no idea in 1979 what was going to happen and how it was going to impact me and change me. I had no idea it would lead me anywhere. I had no idea I'd be here today. It's by the grace of God. But I had to overcome the fear and my own lack of faith and follow where he said to go even in parts of the country where I didn't want to go. And then, of course, there's the obvious sin in our lives. That holds us back. That keeps the Holy Spirit at a distance from us. So what are the solutions to it? Most obvious, what did the disciples do? Ran to the room. They prayed. Prayer is the key to releasing the Holy Spirit. Corporate prayer, personal prayer, intense prayer, crying out to the Lord for help. That's when God moves. That's when he moved here in Acts 2. It's also where he moved in Acts 10. Group of Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles gathering together. 
Peter was with him having a meal, which he shouldn't have been doing as a good Jew, but he did it anyway because God sent him there. He went in boldly. And while sitting there, praying and talking, the Holy Spirit came upon him, the Gentiles, in the same way he did among the Jewish people in Acts 2. Prayer. Repentance. And that third thing is exercising what faith you have. I don't have faith to move mountains. I'd like to say I did. But I can only act within the faith God gives me. And that means taking baby steps. We take baby steps. And when he's ready to give us to walking and leaping and, well, you know how it goes. So I'm giving us a bit of a challenge here, not just as a church, but as us as individuals. Do we want to experience that Pentecost again? God does it. When we pray, when we call upon his name, when we're on our knees before him, that's when it happens. I don't mean to be a downer on this thing. There is a way through prayer, through repentance, through exercising what God has already given us. We don't need to have any more. Let's use what we've got right here. Lord, we thank you. We can call upon you. We thank you for the example that you give us from Scripture. And I pray, Lord God, that you would teach us how to pray. Lord, that we would pray your word. Lord, you've given us the language you speak right in the book of Psalms. And I pray that you would encourage us each to pick that book up and begin praying that scripture. All 150 Psalms. Lord, be with us. Be upon us. Guide us. Lead us. Lord, I can just say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.